0: Section 17 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 2, by John Tulloch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5. Henry Moore, Christian Theosophy and Mysticism, Part 3. Moore was in person tall and thin, but of a serene and vivacious countenance, rather pale than florid in his later years, yet was it clear and spirituous, and his eye hazel and vivid as an eagle. There is indeed, as all who have seen his portrait by Logan will admit, a singularly vivid elevation in his countenance, with some lines strongly drawn round the mouth, but with ineffable sweetness, light, and dignity in the general expression. As he is the most poetic and transcendental, so he is upon the whole the most spiritual looking of all the Cambridge divines. His character has been already so far sketched. But it is in some respects so marked and interesting a type of the devout mystic, a character which, as the world grows older, seems to become rarer, at least in any healthy form, that we may be excused for adding a few further touches. He was from youth to age evidently gifted with the most happy and buoyant religious temper. He was profoundly pious, and yet without all sourness, superstition, or melancholy. His habitual cast of mind was a serene thoughtfulness while his outward conversation with his friends was for the most part free and facetious. Religion was in practice with him clearly what he conceived it to be in theory, the consecration and perfection of the natural life, the brightest and best form which it could reach, under the inspiration and guidance of the divine spirit. Although he chose for himself a secluded life, and so far suffered in consequence from a lack of that comprehensive experience which is more than all other education to the wise and open mind. He was not yet actuated in doing so by any indifference to the lighter and more active interests of humanity. There was such a life and spirit in him as loved the exercises of reason, wit, and divine speculation at once. And his biographer has heard him say that he could not get melancholy enough, by which he was supposed to mean, dive deep enough into divine sense and meditation. His spiritual happiness seems at times to have overpowered him, and given him cause for self-reflection he professed to a friend that he was sometimes almost mad with pleasure, and he experienced this ecstatic feeling in the simplest circumstances. Walking abroad after his studies, his sallies towards nature would be often inexpressibly ravishing beyond what he could convey to others. Many passages in his writings, and particularly in his dialogues, show how great was his love of and delight in nature he was wont to say that he wished that he could be always sub dio he could study abroad with less weariness by far to himself than within doors his freedom and buoyancy of mind and rapturous delight in his own thoughts would sometimes carry him away It stimulated unduly his rapidity as a writer, and left him without the cool judgment that rigorously revises, condenses, and brings into form the heated thoughts which the brain casts from it in moments of spiritual and intellectual excitement. He said that he felt sometimes, in writing, as if his mind went faster than he almost desired, and that all the while he seemed, as it were, to be in the air. This mystical glow and elevation were the chief features of his mind and character, a certain transport and radiancy of thought which carried him beyond the common life without raising him to any false or artificial height. It was remarked that his very air had in it something angelical. He seemed to be full of introversions of light, joy, benignity, and devotion at once, as if his face had been overcast with a golden shower of love and purity. Strangers even noticed this marvellous lustre and irradiation in his eyes and countenance. A divine gale, as he himself said, breathed throughout all his life as well as his works, but however far it lifted him, it never inflated him. A highly learned and pious man said that he looked upon Dr. Moore as the holiest person upon the face of the earth, but his charity and humility were not less conspicuous than his piety. His very chamber door was a hospital to the needy. When the winds were ruffling about him, he made it his utmost endeavor to keep low and humble that he might not be driven from that anchor. While Moore, in short, was no hero, either in thought or in deed, his speculations were too transcendental and his life too retired for this, he yet comes before us as a singularly beautiful, benign, and noble character, one of those higher spirits who help us to feel the divine presence on earth and to believe in its reality. 2. In now turning to estimate Moore as a Christian thinker, we must, first of all, consider him in relation to the school of which he is a prominent representative, and the forms of contemporary thought which influenced him, and then endeavour to sum up and explain some of the more distinctive principles of his peculiar philosophy. In other words, we shall look first at his general method and position, and secondly, at his special ideas and theories, so far as they retain interest or significance. In doing this, we shall refer to his writings indiscriminately, as may suit our purpose. Moore, still more than Cudworth, repeats himself, adding prefaces and appendices to what he has already written, and returning again and again upon the same track of thought. The germ, in fact, of most of his speculations may be traced in his early philosophical poems. His genius, in one sense, was singularly fecund. Work after work sprang with easy luxuriance from his pen. But his writings do not exhibit any clear growth or system of ideas, unfolding themselves gradually and maturing to a more comprehensive rationality. This lack of method is more or less characteristic of the school, but the multifarious character of Moore's writings renders it more conspicuous in him than in the others. Not only so, in his later productions there is rather a decay than an increase and enrichment of the rational element. To enter into any exposition of his cabalistical studies, of his discovery of Cartesianism in the first chapters of Genesis, and his favourite notion of all true philosophy descending from Moses through Pythagoras and Plato, and still more to touch his prophetical reveries, the divine science which he finds in the dream of Ezekiel or the visions of the apocalypse, would be labour thrown away, unless to illustrate the weakness of human genius, or the singular absurdities which beset the progress of knowledge, even in its most favourable stages. The supposition that all higher wisdom and speculation were derived originally from Moses and the Hebrew scriptures, and that it was confirmatory both of the truth of scripture and the results of philosophy to make out this traditionary connection, was widely prevalent in the 17th century. It was warmly supported and elaborately argued by some of its most acute and learned intellects. Gale's once famous book, The Court of the Gentiles, was written in support of this theory 1669 to 1677, and was widely popular both in England and on the continent. And a footnote. Both Cudworth and Moore profoundly believed in this connection. Footnote. The supposed traditionary connection was chiefly based on a passage in Strabo, to which reference has been already made, to the effect that a certain Sidonian or Phoenician of the name of Moscus, who lived before the Trojan War, was the reputed father of the atomic philosophy, This Moschus, or Mochus, for so he is elsewhere called in various passages, was believed to be no other than the celebrated Moses of the Jews, with whose successors, the Jewish philosophers, priests, and prophets, Pythagoras conversed at Sidon. Such is Cudworth's conjecture, and Selden and others, no less distinguished in learning, seemed to have joined in it. Moore puts the connection more distinctly and curiously as follows, the Cartesian philosophy being in a manner the same with that of Democritus, and that of Democritus the same with the physiological part of Pythagoras's philosophy, and Pythagoras's philosophy the same with the Sidonian, as also the Sidonian with the Mosaical, it will necessarily follow that the Mosaical philosophy, in the physiological part thereof, is the same with the Cartesian. Quote. Culverwell, it will be seen, distinctly repudiates this supposed indebtedness of the Greeks to the Hebrews. In this respect, as in some others, showing his superiority to his age and school. End of footnote. But this was only one of many instances of their lack of critical and historical judgment. Historical criticism, in the modern sense, was not even then dreamed of, and it is needless to consider forgotten delusions which have perished, rather with the common growth of reason than by the force of any special genius or discovery. 1. In his general method and the avowed basis of his thought, Moore occupies the common ground of the Cambridge School. He was a vigorous advocate of the rights of reason, and believed it to be one of his chief missions to show how the Christian and philosophic genius should mix together. The Christian religion, rightly understood, appeared to him to be the deepest and choicest piece of philosophy that is. It was the main, if not the only, scope of his long and anxious studies to demonstrate the rationality of the Christian religion throughout. Quote, For to heap up a deal of reading and notions and experiments without some such noble and important design had but been to make his mind or memory a shop of small wares. He adopted therefore without hesitation the generous resolution of Marcus Cicero, Rationem quo ea mecunque ducet sequar. He was proud to adorn himself as a writer with the sacerdotal breastplate of the Logion or Rationale. Every priest, he adds, quoting Philo, should endeavour according to his opportunity and capacity to be as much as he can a rational man or philosopher. Again, to take away reason under what fanatic pretence soever is to disrobe the priest and despoil him of his breastplate and which is worst of all to rob christianity of that special prerogative it has above all other religions in the world namely that it dares appeal unto reason which as many as understand the true interest of our religion will not fail to stick closely to the contrary betraying it to the unjust suspicion of falsehood and equalizing it to every vain imposture for take away reason and all religions are alike true As the light being removed all things are of one colour. More's doctrine of reason is eminently alexandrine. He quotes Philo and Clemens and Plotinus alike in support of his general position that the image of God is the royal and divine logos, but the image of this image is the human intellect. Or as he elsewhere explains more fully, for mine own part reason seems to me to be so far from being any contemptible principle in man, that it must be acknowledged in some sort to be in God himself. For what is the divine wisdom but that steady comprehension of the ideas of all things with their mutual respects one to another, congruities and incongruities, dependences and independences, which respects do necessarily arise from the natures of the ideas themselves, both which the divine intellect looks through at once, discerning thus the order and coherence of all things? And what is this but ratio stabilis? a kind of steady and immovable reason, discovering the connection of all things at once. But that in us is ratio mobilis, or reason in evolution, we being able to apprehend things only in a successive manner, one after another. But so many as we can comprehend at a time, while we plainly perceive and carefully view their ideas, we know how well they fit, or how much they disagree one with another, and so prove or disprove one thing by another which is really a participation of that divine reason in god and is a true and faithful principle in man when it is perfected and polished by the holy spirit but before very earthly and obscure especially in spiritual things but now seeing the logos or steady comprehensive wisdom of god in which all ideas and their respects are contained is but universal stable reason how can there be any pretense of being so highly inspired as to be blown above reason itself unless men will fancy themselves wiser than god or their understandings above the natures and reasons of things themselves." Close quote. To exclude the use of reason in the search of divine truth was therefore, according to Moore, simply to destroy the light by which divine truth can alone be recognized. It was to act, as he himself says, like a company of men who, traveling by night, with links, torches, and lanterns, put out their borrowed light from misconceit of it in comparison with the sweet and cheerful splendor of the day, and choose rather to foot it in the dark, and tumble into the next ditch, than to go happily forward with such light as they had. But while Moore is thus strenuous in his advocacy of reason, as the only guide of the philosophical theologian, and the only sure foundation of divine truth, he no less strongly advocates the recognition of a higher principle more noble and inward than reason itself, and without which reason will falter, or at least, reach but to mean and frivolous things. To this principle he gives the name of divine sagacity, and speaks of it as antecedent, or in his own language, antecedaneous, to reason, but also and more correctly as, quote, the first rise of successful reason, especially in matters of great comprehension and moment all pretenders to philosophy he adds will be ready to magnify reason to the skies to make it the light of heaven and the very oracle of god but they do not consider that the oracle of god is not to be heard but in his holy temple that is to say in a good and holy man thoroughly sanctified in spirit soul and body for there is a sanctity even of body and complexion which the sensually minded do not so much as dream of aaron's his logion or oracle of reason, did it not include in it the urim and thummim, purity and integrity of the will and affections, as well as the light of the understanding? Was not that breastplate square, not only in reference to the firmness of ratiocination, as Philo intimates, but also to denote the evenness and uprightness of his spirit that will take upon him to pronounce great truths? For if this divine sagacity be wanting by reason of the impurity of a man's spirit, He can neither hit upon a right scent of things himself, nor easily take it or rightly pursue it when he is put upon it by another." Here again our author not only quotes his neoplatonical authorities, but makes a great point of having Aristotle on his side in a sentence which he quotes from the Eudamian Ethics to the effect that the beginning of reason in us is something higher than reason or the divine itself. He appears to mean, substantially, what is familiar to Platonic students and may be said to have become a commonplace with certain theologians, that in order to apprehend higher divine truth we must approach it with a right disposition as well as a free and unprejudiced intellect. All such truth, from its very nature, addresses our reason on its moral as well as its intellectual side. Its reality can only be grasped through some share in us of the divine whence it comes and which it represents. To affirm this seems little else than a truism, on the supposition that there is spiritual truth at all, and that the divine ideal of the gospels forms its highest expression. Yet beyond question, so plain an axiom has been frequently forgotten, both in theology and philosophy, and Moore did right to emphasize it as he does. It became the keynote of his whole system of thought. Without the recognition of such a spiritual side in reason, he could not make a start at all. It is natural, therefore, to find him returning to the subject in the preface to the Latin edition of his works, in which he reviews all that he has done, and insisting upon it formally as the explanation of his having put his ethics there in front of all his other philosophical writings. He did this, he says, with the view of marking forever his opinion that the only solid foundation of a true philosophy of human life was moral purity such a temper and quality of mind as he has described in his ethics under the name of moral prudence or philosophical temperance. For any one to attempt the comprehension of divine things without a clear and purified spiritual insight was like a man trying to grasp difficult objects at a distance without a healthy and properly assisted vision. With such a rational basis of thought, it may be matter of wonder that more developed so largely not only an element of mysticism, but a vein of credulity which must be pronounced excessive even for his age it requires some acquaintance with his writings to estimate the force of this vein and the strange manner in which it is constantly cropping out he believed not only all the popular stories about witchcraft but he recounts with an abounding faith the most absurd and frivolous narratives of ghosts and apparitions nay he sets them forth in a systematic manner with perfectly honest aim as attestations and arguments on behalf of the supernatural the third book of his antidote against atheism is entirely devoted to this subject and is nearly as long as the two preceding books together the first of which may be said to deal with the a priori and the second with certain a posteriori aspects of the theistic argument it is scarcely possible without consecutive perusal of this treatise to conceive a mind so acute searching and logical as is displayed in some parts of the first book sinking into such puerility and nonsense as abound in the last the metaphysician hesitating with critical thoughtfulness over certain forms of the cartesian demonstration of the existence of deity passes into a mere retailer of popular gossip which has not even the merit of being interesting we must bear in mind however the strong hold which such stories of the supernatural had upon the mind of the seventeenth century glanville the advocate of a scientific scepticism ran in this respect a race of blind credulity with his friend Footnote. hobbes was one of the few men of the age who professed entirely to disbelieve in ghosts and to look upon them as nothing else but creatures of the fancy but if the well-known story be true as to his apprehensions when left alone in the dark his disbelief does not seem to have been of a very practical kind. End of footnote. We may also recall the phenomena of what is called spiritualism in our day before condemning too loudly the absurdities of such men. Some of Moore's and Glanville's stories are, in fact, singularly like those now or lately soliciting scientific investigation. Spirit-thumping on the bench must have been very much the same as table rapping nor does it seem more absurd to conceive spirits employed in the fantastic mischief-making attributed to them by our theologians than in making senseless revelations without meaning or utility to any human creature in the general cast of his theological and ecclesiastical views Moore was equally in accord with his school his early alienation from calvinism did not throw him into any opposite extreme of dogma in his works he seldom alludes to calvinism or arminianism and nowhere discusses or shows any interest in their doctrinal differences. His platonic genius and the philosophic atmosphere around him saved him from this. All his theological interests go deeper. They concern not so much differences within the church as the reality of Christian truth itself and the existence of an organic Christian communion or church at all. His contentions were with atheists or corporealists on the one hand and Quakers on the other, those who, in his view, either cut away the basis of the supernatural altogether, or destroyed the idea of a church in the dream of a new or second dispensation. The consciousness of this higher task made him, as well as his friend Cudworth, indifferent to minor distinctions of controversy. Indeed he disliked such distinctions cordially, and frequently reprobates them under the name of opinions which, according to him, were merely the goodly inventions of nice theologers destined to disappear when men have learned a higher wisdom and a more corroborated faith in Christ. With all the Cambridge divines, he emphasizes the moral and practical side of Christianity. Religion was for him, as for all of them, embodied in life rather than in dogma. Not that he disparaged right opinion or true doctrine, but that he desired in a contentious age to draw the earnestness of men from theological disputation to Christian duty he could very well conceive a christian man in honest error as to various points of doctrine but religion without moral aspiration and action was wholly unintelligible nay it was the wildest form of delusion which could only end in fanaticism or imposture his own proclaimed adherence to the principle of a light within us as the ultimate test of religious truth presented either by nature or scripture made him insist all the more strongly on the application of a moral criterion to all religious profession. It might be a fair question for any one perplexed amidst the swarming sects around him as to which form of Christian doctrine was the true or divine form, but there could be no real question as to the vital principles lying at the foundation of all religion. To one thus perplexed he says, quote, I demand of you, is there any way imaginable but this, viz, to adhere to those things that are incontrovertibly good and true, and to bestow all that zeal and all that heat and all that pains for the acquiring the simplicity of the life of God that we do in promoting our own interest or needless and doubtful opinions. And I think it is without controversy true to any that are not degenerate below men that temperance is better than intemperance, justice than injustice, humility than pride, love than hatred, and mercifulness than cruelty it is also uncontrovertedly true that god loves his own image and that the propagation of it is the most true dispreading of his glory as the light which is the image of the sun is the glory of the sun wherefore it is as plainly true that god is as well willing as able to restore this image in men that his glory may shine in the world this therefore is the true faith to believe that by the power of god in christ we may reach to the participation of the divine nature which is a simple mild benign light that seeks nothing for itself as self but doth tenderly and cordially endeavour the good of all and rejoiceth in the good of all and will assuredly meet them that keep close to what they plainly in their own consciences are convinced is the leading to it and i say that sober morality conscientiously kept to is like the morning light reflected from the higher clouds and a certain prodrome of the sun of righteousness itself but when he is risen above the horizon the same virtues then stream immediately from his visible body and they are the very members of christ according to the spirit and he that is come hither is a pillar in the temple of god for ever and ever Close again when he looks forward to the future he sees the triumph of christianity the dawn of a true millennium not in the elevation of this or that form of dogmatism but only in the universal diffusion of a spirit of christian purity self-denial and peace the childish conceit of some is that the future prosperity of the church will be nothing but the setting up of this form or that opinion and so every faction will be content to be millennists upon condition that christ may reign after their way or mode that is in calvinism in arminianism in papism in anabaptism in quakerism in presbytery in episcopacy in independency and the like but the true happiness of those days is not to be measured by formalities or opinions but by a more corroborated faith in christ and his promises by devotion unfeigned by purity of heart and innocency of life by faithfulness by common charity by comfortable provisions for the poor and abundance of kindness and discreet condescensions one to another by unspotted righteousness and an unshaken peace, by the removal of every unjust yoke, by mutual forbearance, and bearing up one another as living stones of that temple where there is not to be heard the noise of either axe or hammer, no squabble or clamor about forms or opinions, but a peaceable study and endeavor of provoking one another to love and good works. Close quote. 2. But more, like Cudworth also, had a determinate philosophic aim which carried him beyond the general teaching of the Cambridge School. He was not only in profession a rational theologian and an advocate of conciliatory principles in religion and the church, but he was still more characteristically a spiritual thinker who sought to survey the whole field of knowledge in his day and to bring its fresh and in many respects startling discoveries into some new form of theoretic synthesis or satisfactory philosophy. This was undoubtedly his own conception of his mission, as may be gathered from many hints in his writings, and its conscious dignity probably inspired and consoled him more in his solitary life of meditation than we might at first imagine. Footnote. He speaks of himself in his apology as quote, a fisher for philosophers, desirous to draw them to or retain them in the Christian faith. And a footnote: The tone of one who had really worked for his age and led it into a freer and nobler line of speculation suited to its larger intellectual wants may be traced throughout the elaborate preface to his collected works to which we have already so often adverted his own estimate of his labours has not been verified some of his favourite speculations have even perished from the memory of the philosophical student but the general force of his thinking was not only influential in its day but has passed into the common inheritance of spiritual or theistic thought as it stands once more in the course of revolution in the front of a materialistic philosophy. While there is much, therefore, in Moore's speculative attitude and theories which has merely a curious and antiquarian interest, there is also a good deal which is vital and perennially significant. His general attitude as a thinker is to be determined with relation to the two great intellectual forces of the time, Hobbes and Descartes, especially the latter. There is no evidence, indeed, that our author was a student of Hobbes in any such sense as Cudworth, or that the speculations of the Decive or the Leviathan had impressed him in the same manner. To Cudworth's more severe moral temper, Hobbes was an alarming phenomenon. He never speaks of him with any complimentary respect. He seems to have felt too closely, and, so to speak, too solemnly, the hostile bearing of his materialistic theories. But to Moore, from the more serene heights of his meditative enthusiasm, the author of The Leviathan did not bulk with any such formidable significance. He was merely a hostile power among many other hostile powers, and when he alludes to him, which he does very seldom, he uses language more genial and respectful than he frequently applies to Quakers and other fanatical opponents. He is our countryman Mr. Hobbes, whose speculative confidence, quote, may well assure any man that duly considers the excellency of his natural wit and parts that he has made choice of the most demonstrative arguments, close quote, in favor of his own conclusions. Footnote, Immortality of the Soul, Chapter 9, 2. He speaks of Hobbes again in the same treatise as, quote, that confident exploder of immaterial substance out of the world, close quote. End of footnote. Probably the very distance and elevation of Moore's mind from the peculiar principles that animated Hobbes led him to look with comparative composure on the philosophy of the latter. He was too much above it or apart from it to understand it fully, or the attraction which it possessed for many minds. His own mode of thought was too diffusive, genial, and indistinct to enable him to realize all the strength of a system so simple, compact, and definite two minds more different it would be hard to conceive the one full of eager enthusiasm and aspiring dreams of human philanthropy fertile earnest and vaguely ingenious the other sober contemptuous and severely thoughtful with the most keen and shrewd insight into the difficulties of life and society but without any faith or enthusiasm content if only it could weave the conflicting threads of human interest and passion into a web of theory which would hold them together and give them solidarity in their natural and constant tendency to repulsion and to dissolution it was easy for minds so entirely separate and so unlike to be mutually respectful with so few common sympathies and such divided aims they could salute each other deferentially at a distance for the story is that hobbes reciprocating moore's feeling was in the habit of saying that if ever he found his own opinions untenable quote, he would embrace the philosophy of dr moore Close quote. Footnote. We have not ascertained the authority for this story, but it is commonly told in notices both of Moore and Hobbes. Hewell mentions it in his lectures, History of Moral Philosophy, page 61. End of footnote. It is pleasant to note such interchanges of personal compliment betwixt the opposing camps of thought, but they do not, of course, any more than the salutations of other combatants, pass for anything in the grave crisis of the struggle. Moore's only direct polemic with Hobbes is to be found in his treatise on the immortality of the soul. Here he quotes at length the statements in the Leviathan and elsewhere about the nature and universality of body, and attempts a detailed refutation of them. It is unnecessary in the meantime to enter into this polemic, because it joins on to our author's general views respecting the existence and nature of incorporeal substances, discussed at length in his metaphysics and his correspondence with Descartes. It is enough to say that it strongly illustrates what we have already remarked as to the general relation of the two thinkers. Their primary position or starting point is so diverse that they cannot get together for fair argument and encounter. As Hobbes admits no other evidence than what he calls conception, and all conception, he adds, is imagination and proceedeth from sense, so, of course, he can find no rational or intelligent evidence for the existence of spirits which he supposes to be those substances which work not upon the sense, and therefore are not conceptible. To a philosophy which provides no inlet for any other form of truth and reality than that which is corporeal or sensible, it necessarily follows that there is nothing in the universe but body. Quote, body and substance are but names of one and the same thing, which is called body as it fills a place, and substance as it is subject to various accidents or alterations. Close quote. but it is plain to all the world as moore retorts that this is not to prove but to suppose what is to be proved to shut the window may exclude the light but does not prove that the light does not exist on the other hand the philosophy of moore opening from the commencement a higher inlet of fact starting not from sense but from the spiritual reason not only has no difficulty in recognising spiritual or immaterial substance but finds its highest evidence in this very region of truth, which Hobbes deliberately shuts out of sight. End of Chapter Five, Part Three.